Now, if you will, if you'll take your copies of Scripture and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. Matthew, chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 34. Uh, We've already mentioned that uh, today and the next two Sundays, we've set aside for our what we call our identity series. Um, We have 52 Sundays a week that we gather here. Uh, Hopefully you're able to to make most of those, if not all of them. Um, But in seeking to be faithful to our mission and our purpose, uh, we felt it important to give three weeks to pointing back to uh, these three statements that you see here on the wall. To love God supremely, love others sacrificially, and live in the world distinctively. When we set out, we said that was what we were about. We're driven by the biblical text pointing us there and saying this is our purpose. It could be stated any number of ways, but it's not just what we state that matters is how we live it out and carry it out. Uh, So we believe these statements are important because they guide us in what we do in ministry and in the way we carry ourselves uh, in the world. They make a difference with us about how we evaluate our ministries, how we think about Oak Valley's relationship to God, how we think about Oak Valley's relationship uh, to each other and our church family, um, and uh, how we think about those outside of the church those who don't believe in Christ as the all-sufficient Savior and Son of God. Uh, We've just come out of our psalm series, and uh, I'm grateful, Adam, that uh, we are, we we don't rehearse all these things, but a lot of times you will hear things repeated. Uh, But we just came out of our summer psalm series, and I want to tell you, my heart remains full, having considered Psalm 1, Psalm 6, the 23rd Psalm, the 46th Psalm, the 100th Psalm, the 145th Psalm, and the 148th Psalm that you heard repeated uh, today. And we put that in there, as Adam said, purposefully, and we ended our psalm series purposely there because it pointed to the praise of God. And as we have already heard today, that there is something that precedes the praise of God, and that is love for Him, adoration for Him. Uh, And Adam, thank you for for stating that and helping us see that. With that in mind, uh, we want to consider today our love for God as we give consideration to uh, what it means to love God supremely. That is the first of our statements. The first of our statements of purpose is that we exist for the purpose of loving God uh, supremely. Uh, I want to ask you, if you will, to allow me to do something that I did last week, and that is refer back to, as I did just a moment ago, uh, the first statement of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And the answer to that is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That statement is grounded in what Booney just referred to just a moment ago as the uh, Shema, but I want us to look at it in regards to our text today, so hold your finger there in Matthew chapter 10, and then I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 22, where that Shema, part of it, is rehearsed in Matthew 22. Look in verse 34 through 37. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, speaking of Jesus, 
they gather together, and one of them, a lawyer, asks him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And to help us understand this more, um, we want to look at our text today. So if you will, back in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, let's hear these words. And this is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now if you'll recall... When we studied Matthew together, we said that Matthew is divided into five sections of teaching. We went through those and pointed those out. And we noted uh, that uh, the, each, we knew we were going into another teaching session because uh, it would end in a similar way that we just read in verse 1 of chapter 11 when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. In other words, that ended a teaching session. We should find that particularly interesting today in light of the text we just read that the Holy Spirit through Matthew pointedly closes this second teaching section in Matthew with one of the hard sayings of Jesus. Now, what do we mean when we say hard saying? Well, look at it again. Do not think that I come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter, against her mother and a daughter-in-law, against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And he continues with these hard sayings. I want you to listen to the radical speech of Jesus. Listen to the radical demands of Jesus. Now most often when we read these, we pass them off. Well, we can't understand them. We move on. Or we will read them and say, well, he really can't mean that. He really can't mean that. D.A. Carson once said as he wrote about this text, he said, it's clear from this text that Jesus is either the Messiah or a maniac. Uh, 
one or the other, and we would have to say that that is a reasonable statement. Who else could make such statements? Certainly cult leaders have and have proven to be maniacs. But here Jesus makes radical claims and radical commands. I want you to let's pray and ask that God would give us understanding to this hard saying of Jesus and how that relates to us as a church and as a people who have said that we exist to love God supremely. Let's pray together. Father, we read these words and we recognize immediately that they are hard, incredibly hard. Give us understanding today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the full text. Uh, we'll not be able to exhaust it this morning. Uh, but I do believe that we can glean parts of the message of this text. And here's how I want to approach it. We will identify five radical statements, and then we'll draw one final conclusion. Five radical statements, uh, and then we will conclude with the one statement. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the concluding statement. You may want to write it down. Just a few words. In other words, this is where we're going to go in the end. A radical love from God will be met by a radical love for God. A radical love from God will be met by a radical love for God. That's the concluding statement. That's our argument. So the first statement, hard saying, is found in verse 34. Look at it. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Now, just so we're clear, when Jesus makes a radical statement, one that seems to set aside everything else that we understand about him, everything else that we think about him, maybe everything else that we have seen in Scripture uh, that he says or that others say about him, when we see these kinds of statements, it should cause us to kind of perk up a little bit and say and ask the question, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is, is that Jesus is trying to make an important point. He's trying to get our attention. So when it occurs, we just assume that Jesus is stressing something, and then what is left before us, our job is, in other words, to let's find out what he's stressing. What is he saying? Notice he said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come to bring peace. To, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, I want you to remember that he is teaching his disciples. We know that by looking back in chapter 10 and verse 1. And remember, we're in chapter 10. We're closing at the end of this teaching session in verse 1 of chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples. And from that, he gives them authority. He sends them out on a, on a mission trip. He sends them out to proclaim the gospel, to heal, to cast out demons. All of this is going on. And the rest of this chapter, he's teaching his disciples. If you'll just kind of track through just a little bit, 
uh, when you get down to verse 24, uh, a disciple is not above his teacher. In other words, he's encountered, they have encountered some issues. They've encountered some things and he's trying to help them see how they relate to him. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. He goes on in verse 26, uh, have no fear of those who stand against you and accuse you. In other words, they have experienced hardship. They've experienced persecution. And he is trying to tell them not to fear. In verse 31, he says, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, don't think that somehow in the course of this, that uh, if you are facing persecution and hardship, that you've been forgotten. Don't think that somehow or another, God does not have his hand on you. He says, no, he knows, he knows the sparrows. He knows you. And then he goes on to say, he even knows the number of hairs that uh, you have on your head. That's how well he knows us. That's how much he cares for us. And then notice what he says in verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So let's look at this radical statement over against the other things that we have heard about Christ. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and verse 9, Jesus himself says, Blessed are the peacemakers. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, the angel said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth among those whom he is pleased. In other words, he has brought peace to the earth. He's bringing peace to the earth when Jesus' birth was being declared by the angel. Zechariah prophesied in Luke 1.79 that Jesus would give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. James said, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul said, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then we don't have to go far until we look at the fruit of the Spirit. And what's one of the fruits of the, for one of the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. And what's the third one listed? Peace. So now we come back to the text. We should be surprised in some way to hear Jesus say that he didn't come to bring peace. The question is, is what does he mean? What does he mean? Well, I think part of the way that we come to understand what he means is to see it in its context. Remember, he's brought up the recent struggles of his disciples on their latest mission and points to a continuation of those struggles, that there will be those struggles, there will be persecution. He has already told them that he will face persecution, they will face persecution. But I believe another thing that we have to consider is the difference between uh, his purpose and the result of his purpose. 
His design was to bring peace. We know it was the design to bring peace because he said that he was going to bring peace between those who were lost and God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul said it this way, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also recognize that Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The immediate consequence of Christ's coming was to divide That was the immediate consequence. When he came, the immediate consequence was division was being had. So this sword that he has in his hand when he is speaking to his disciples was a sword to divide. To divide what? Well, we were talking about it earlier whenever uh, Alina and and, and Booney were rehearsing. Uh, A sword to divide the, the sheep from the goats. The lost from the saved. The righteous from the unrighteous. The the called against those who are not called. That That was the sword. In other words, his coming initially brought a division. It brought a division. And his coming still in some ways has brought a division. That's the reason that there are those in the church and those who are not in the church. That's the reason just a moment ago we just prayed for Muslim communities and families that are struggling and suffering right now and grieving in the loss of their family members. Are, are they the same as the, the same as Christians? No. They're not. There's a division there. There's a division. And, and that's what Jesus is pointing to. He is saying that there is a division. The immediate consequence of Christ's coming was to divide those who were for him and those who were against him. The children of God from the children of this world. It's been stated in this way, just kind of as a goal in, uh, in amputation. The goal in amputation is to do what? To relieve pain and save life. But what has to come first? Pain has to come first. The infliction of pain to remove pain. Well, likewise, Christ's ultimate mission is to bring peace to the human heart and to earth. And it will come. But the immediate effect of that message was to divide those in the kingdom. Those from those who were a part of the kingdom of God and those who were not. Let's make it even more clear. Those who were a part of the kingdom of God and those who are part of the kingdom of Satan. Spurgeon had this to say about Jesus' radical statement. Listen to this. The Christian will be sure to make enemies. It will be one of his objects to make none, but if to do it right and to believe the true should cause him to lose every earthly friend he will count it but a small loss since his great friend in heaven will be yet more friendly and reveal himself to him more graciously than ever. O ye who have taken up his cross, 
Know ye not what your master said? I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Christ is the great peacemaker. But before peace, he brings war. Where the light cometh, the darkness must retire. Where truth is, the lie must flee. Or if the divideth, there must be a stern conflict. For the truth cannot and will not lower its standard, and the lie must be trodden underfoot. If you follow Christ, you shall have all the dogs of the world yelping at your heels. And if you would live so as to stand the test of the last tribunal, talking about the judgment, Depend upon it, the world will not speak well of you. He who has the friendship of the world is an enemy to God, but if you are true and faithful to the Most High, men will resent your unflinching fidelity, since it is a testimony against their iniquities. Fearless of all consequences, you must do the right. You will need the courage of a lion unhesitatingly to pursue a course which shall turn your best friend into your fiercest foe. But for the love of Jesus, you must thus be courageous. For the truth's sake, to hazard reputation and affection is such a deed that to do it constantly, you will need a degree of moral principle which only the Spirit of God can work in you. Yet turn not back like a coward, but play the man. Follow right manfully in your master's steps, for he has traversed this rough way before you. Better a brief warfare and eternal rest than false peace and everlasting torment. Hear that again. Better a brief warfare and, e- and eternal rest than false peace and everlasting torment. Now Jesus moves to the second radical statement that is used to illustrate the first. Let's look at it. He says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now that sounds foreign to us, doesn't it? That sounds foreign to us. So to illustrate the battle scene, Jesus immediately goes to the most natural love and most natural relationships, the family unit. He does that to illustrate the tension and the division. In other words, the seriousness of it. That's the reason that he uses this. Is it real? Yes. Is he prophesying? Yes. Is this a possibility? Yes. Is it a probability? Yes. A high probability. Some of you have experienced it yourself. Notice how he speaks of the tensions. He says he uses the word against and enemies. In other words, they will be set against each other. They will be enemies of each other. Now, he isn't saying that this will be the case in every family relationship. What he is saying is, is that his radical love in his work, the radical love of his work of grace in the life of an individual that hears the word of God, And by the work of God comes to faith in Christ. 
that that radical work in that person's life is going to ultimately cause them to be at odds with those who don't trust Christ. And in that, those very persons may be their own family members. He is trying to help them to see the seriousness of the division. I don't know how many memorial services I have been to, funerals, where mama's gone back to be with daddy, or daddy's gone to be with mama, or son or daughter has gone to be with mom or dad, and the gospel never heard, it is just assumed to make everybody feel better that mama and daddy and brothers and sisters, no matter what their life is like, all wind up in heaven together. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case. He is making a division between those who have trusted Christ and those who haven't. Those who are believers, those who aren't. And he goes to the family unit here again and notice that. What is he saying? Radical love in his work will create divisions. And they'll be painful and hard. The point is the divisions will be in the home. And I mentioned earlier, some of you have experienced these. You know, they're painful. A mother forsaking her son because he now trusts Christ and has rejected the values of the religion that he was raised to follow. A sister who stands opposed to her sister because one has trusted Christ and can't support her sister's lesbian lifestyle. A husband comes to faith in Christ and his wife and children no longer want to have anything to do with it. What Jesus is doing here is in a big way, he is leveling the playing field for all relationships. That's important for us as we think about loving God supremely is that all other relationships are leveled in the course of this. Leveled against what? They are leveled against the ultimate relationship in Christ having received the love of God by the grace of Christ, and now in turn looking back to Him, delighting in Him, and loving Him above all other relationships. He is pointing to the work of dividing. There's a radical division, and we're getting ready to see just how radical. Look at the third radical statement, now that flows from the first two. Look at what Jesus said. In case there's any confusion, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, what is he saying? Well, Jesus is making his point, and it relates to loving him. That's where he's getting to. He's pointing to loving him. No relationship is to take precedent over our relationship with him. Now, he's not saying to dishonor parents. Jesus has already upheld the fifth commandment. He publicly called out the Pharisees uh, and the scribes because they weren't honoring their, 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 their mothers and their fathers. They weren't honoring their parents. In, in fact, they were teaching and they were promoting even in their own lifestyle, holding back the funds that should have been going to their parents to take care of them, and they've been holding it back. And Jesus publicly states that. 
He told the rich young man to honor your father and your mother. But we do realize when we, that what he is saying is that when we see his supreme beauty, his authority, and his glory, we recognize that his love is so radical that our love for him has to be that radical. It will be that radical. When we see his glory and his beauty and the wonder in him and his authority, then the love that will be, that will show our delight for him, as we were singing in praise and as we've already been pointing to, will be just that radical because it is a radical love for someone who has radically loved us. And his radical love is far more radical than our love is for him. Because he radically loved his enemy. He radically loved the person who hated him. And now the person who has been radically moved and touched by his love radically loves him back. Now just practically speaking for a moment. uh, Most of us as we take a look at our relationships, even in our own family, we're able to negotiate those relationships with our lost family members. So we don't have maybe this this deep cut. I was thinking about it this week. I wonder why that is. If they're lost and we're not, there can be several reasons. One reason may be that our witness is so weak that it doesn't pose a threat to them. You ever thought about that? Our witness before them is so weak it doesn't propose a threat Another reason may be that they may believe they're okay. In other words, they may profess Christ and have no real love for him. He isn't a growing beauty and wonder in their life. They don't delight in him. He has, as they suppose, they've insulated them from the fires of hell. And that's all they really wanted anyway. They just didn't want to go to hell. And it can be that though they have not yet trusted Christ, he is using your witness to draw them to himself. But there will be in other cases where they will disdain and hate you and will, if given the opportunity, will openly oppose you. What's the point? Well, Jesus is pointing to a supreme love for him, no matter what that is, because all relationships are leveled. Just know that Jesus is talking about a very real thing. And when it comes to loving him supremely, he deals with the real things, the reality. Remember, the disciples have already stated and will state in John's gospel that they had left everything. Peter said, we, we, see, we've left everything and we followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or land for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, land with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You see, the rich man had just refused to leave his wealth. And Peter pointed back to the fact that they 
to the, the disciples that we're willing to make that sacrifice. Here's the point. Whoever, does, whoever doesn't love Jesus this way doesn't have Jesus. That's the point that he's making. Look at that. He says there in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. What he's saying, whoever does not love him above everything else, even mothers and fathers, that they don't have Jesus. That's what he's saying. They don't have Jesus. He isn't making a statement about earning the right to him. He's saying that only those who see him as supreme and love him as supreme have him. So the question for us would be, do we love him that way? Pointed back to where we started this morning, even in praise. We can serve and not love. We can serve out of obligation. We can serve in an attempt to get to him, to have him, to deserve him. But Jesus said, if you don't love me in this way above all things, you don't have me. And we'll see this in just a minute. The intervention in history by the Son of God splits, it divides human relationships. Uh, and we have heard that and we have seen that already in what Christ has to say. And this leads us to the fourth radical statement. Look at what he says next. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It was a radical statement. They knew exactly what he was talking about. No telling how many hundreds of crosses that they had ever walked by. They were living in a day where it was not an uncommon thing to see folks hung on a cross, executed. They had public executions in those days. The culture and society wasn't somehow or another isolated from that. Um, I had a good friend of mine who grew up in Pender County. And he was an older person. And he remembered the day that they would take offenders there on the courthouse square there in Burgall. And they had a post and they would tie them to that post and they would whip them publicly. Uh, he said, you would be surprised at the impact that that had on those who were witnessing those kinds of things. Well, the disciples were walking by as Jesus was. So when he said, take up the cross, he knew exactly, they knew exactly what it was. This was not a metaphor, uh, so to speak. This was a real thing in the sense that it was a reality. And they knew that in, in him saying to take up that cross, it meant to go to death even for him, to love him to that degree. You know, only the person who loves Christ will follow him in that way. Uh, A.W. Tozer said this in relation to this text and the implications of being crucified uh, for Christ and with Christ. Here's what he said. I want you to listen to these things. They're profound. He said to be crucified with Christ means three things. Number one, a man who is crucified is facing only one way. He's only looking in one direction. Number two, a man who is crucified is not going back. Once they were nailed to the cross, there was no going back. So a person who willingly picked up that cross 
was only looking one way, and that was to go to the hill or wherever that cross was to be placed. Once that person willingly, out of love for Christ, said, I will be nailed to that cross, there was no going back. It was one of those things that when you are strapped into the electric chair uh, and the current is run through your body, there is no turning back. Or when lethal injection takes place, there's no going back. And he said the third thing is, he has no further plans of his own. In other words, the person who follows Christ has no plans for his or her life other than the plans of Christ. And this takes us to the fifth radical statement. Look in verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. Now I want you to listen to this. This is, this is just radical when Jesus is saying, whoever receives you receives me. Notice the connection that is between those who follow Christ, those who pick up the cross, those who love him to this degree. They are so identified with him that those who receive them receives Christ and whoever receives me, he says, receives him who sent me. It's the reason we looked at that text this morning in John 8 in our confession. Why? Because those who those who believed in him believed in the one who sent him. If they loved him, Christ, they loved the one who sent him. That was the point. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Begin hearing this thing of reward. There is an end to all of this, Jesus is saying. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, and he's not talking about children here. He's talking about disciples. He says so because he is a disciple. In other words, a follower of Christ. Truly I say to you that he will by no means lose his reward. It's a radical statement. Radical in the identification with Christ points to a reward and those who receive the gospel and the message of those who are proclaiming the gospel receive that reward as well. What is that reward? Well, that reward is eternity with God. Eternity with God. So the conclusion is this. Radical love from God will be met by a radical love for God. Now, I want to help you put these pieces together. The church made up of those who are redeemed. Not just because someone wants to come into a church, be a member of an organization, but the person who has believed in Christ and trusted in Christ and set his or her sight on the fact that Christ has died for their sin, has atoned for their sin, has made them at peace with God, recognizing how absurd that whole idea and thought is, is to be made right with God 
when we know in our own lives that we are miserable sinners and that that has come because God has set his affection on us in Christ. That is radical. Radical. That is not met with obligation. That is not met with a I have to. That is not even met with an I ought to. That kind of understanding of the radical love that a believer has received in God is met with. Man, I want to love you, God. I want to love you, Christ. I want to set my affection on you. It's not driven out of obligation. Was it right for God to command it? He could command it because he was going to grant what he, in the life of the individuals that he had commanded. He was stating what is right and what is true as we come to this place. Thomas Brooks, uh, an English Puritan, uh, said it this way, and I want to I want us to hear this. He said, oh, my friends, there is no love but a superlative love that is in any way suitable to the transcendent sufferings and love of our dear Jesus. Oh, love him above your desires. Love him above your relations. Love him above the world. Love him above all your outward contentments and enjoyments. Yea, love him above your very lives. For thus the patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles, the saints, the primitive Christians, and the martyrs of God have loved our Lord Jesus with an overtopping love. And he closed his statement with Revelation 12, 11. You may want to turn there. They loved not their lives unto death. They loved not their lives unto death. In other words, they saw the beauty and the wonder and the glory of Christ. They set their affection and the light on him And they didn't turn back. They didn't have another plan. They loved not their lives unto death. That is, they slighted, contemned, yea, despised their lives, exposing them to hazard and loss out of love to the Lamb who had washed them in His blood. When we speak and say that our purpose is to love God supremely, we have to understand in the course of that 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 is because He has loved us so radically that our want to is to love Him and the trajectory of our lives is toward loving Him. Now there are ways that love is expressed certainly in service, and obedience, but we don't obey our way to God. We don't obligate our way to God. 
We don't serve our way to him. We don't as a church. No, we love him. And we do so with joy and delight. And that, in the end, is the true expression of praise. It's the reason we're able to sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because that blessing is, is that he has loved us. I want to ask Booney and Alina, if they will, to come and lead us as we look to God and sing of his greatness and listen to the lyrics as we sing them to hear again of the grace of God in Christ.